and welcome to the Wartum Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armaza. Today, we are joined by the talented Rob Petrozo, co-founder and chief product officer at Rally Road, a groundbreaking platform for buying and selling equity shares in collectible assets that aims to give every investor a 21st century portfolio. The company has raised close to $30 million from top industry investors like Upfront Ventures, Anthemis, Porsche Ventures, Alexis Ohanian, and many more. We discussed Rob's winding road from artist to entrepreneur, how he got together with his co-founders and why they bring the perfect balance of personalities, challenges and stories from building Rally and their vision of a 21st century portfolio, working with collectible luxury items like cars and art pieces, and the important question of whether they get to test drive all those incredible cars. The importance of building community and why most people confuse community and monetization, his vision for the future of Rally, and a lot more. And now join me in a great conversation with Rob Petrozo. Well, Rob, thank you for joining us and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. How's it going? How are you today? It's going, Miguel. Thank you for having me, man. All is well. Great. Good to hear, man. Good to hear. And then, you know, we're here on a rainy New York City day, but uh, I'm excited to chat. <laughs> Likewise, rainy days in New York are one of the, those are the most productive. So it's not a bad thing every now and then. I like that. I like that. Rob, let's get started by hearing about your background, right? I mean, you, you're a co-founder at, at Rally, but that's just the, your last gig. Maybe you can tell us a bit uh, about uh, your, your life before Rally. Yeah, I'll give you the I'll give you the quick five minutes. So the uh, life before rally. I don't know. If, I didn't have a life before rally. This is it. This is uh, my personality and my life are so inexorably tied to this business now that it's unavoidable. But to give you a sort of the quick rundown, my uh, I grew up in Brooklyn, as did Chris, my uh, our other co-founder. Max is from Germany, but he's also got New York roots. So we're kind of very much all of us, very much New York bred and New York company. I think that for me, growing up in Brooklyn and going to school in Brooklyn and kind of living a little bit in Philadelphia. You get this kind of East Coast finance meets culture kind of vibe. And that's always been a lot of where at least my work has lived to this point. So I went to school uh, in Philadelphia for art. So my ultimate goal at one point was to be like a working artist and to get out of school. And this is in 2005, 2006 and live by painting or illustrating. And then, you know, that it turns out that that's not actually a job. You find that out really quickly when you get out of school and you have this degree and it's great. But at the same time, so much stuff was changing when I got out of school. So the first thing... I wound up doing, I was working in music and uh, I was working at a, a company under BMG sub-label uh, that was run by Kanye West. And he was just sort of coming out at the time, but it was very much a startup. And I was really their only designer to start. It was a lot of packaging and logos and doing some stuff for tour merchandise. But it was, you know, a group of 10, 15 people that had a small budget from Sony. And it was like, go create. And that to me was really what I wanted to be doing. So it was able to use design, a little bit of entrepreneurship, a little bit of hustle along the way. And much like in startups, like they exist now, you meet a bunch of great people and you wind up coming up with some ideas and, you know, you learn some along the way. I was learning design and learning a little bit of coding. And this is all pre-iPhone. So when the iPhone came out 2007, 2008, that changed everything for all designers. And I found myself gravitating way more towards building websites and thinking about what apps might look like as the app store launched. So I wound up at a couple of startups here in New York, one called Scroll Motion, which was a digital publisher that was bringing a bunch of magazines to life. And it was the first time that magazines like GQ and Entrepreneur and Oprah Magazine 
were creating these interactive pages. And that was like blowing people's minds, myself included. So that was the first real design gig was one of the earliest employees there. And one of their first creative directors that led to more conversations. I wound up at a company called uh, Kimi here in New York, which is digital locksmith and it's computer vision and working with these incredible engineers. And similarly, one of the first sort of product leads there when there was five engineers, but no real sort of tangible product, bringing all that to life and building out a team, a similar situation, you need a bunch more people. I wound up at a hedge fund here in New York called Aries, building out some of their internal software. And that was really the first foray into true finance. And I think at that point, this is 2013, 2014, I really started to realize that a lot of sort of what we would look at as high finance and investors, they want things to look and feel and act the same way that the apps they use on their phone, the consumer apps work. And that was the first time that for me, I realized that those two worlds could connect. You could have consumer and the Instagrams and the sort of goats and like these consumer apps that everybody loves work in tandem with FinTech and with finance and create something really special for a lot of people. And that was sort of one of the last stops before what would become Rally with me, Chris and Max. Fascinating, fascinating. And Rob, so tell us a bit about Rally. I think it's an exciting concept, definitely groundbreaking. You're not the only ones doing something like that, but you're, you're you know, pretty unique. And you know, maybe you can tell our audience, where did the idea come about and, and what are you guys doing today? Yeah, so I'll start with the, just in case I know a lot of people, what we do is very complex, but it's also, we've tried to wrap all of that in a really easy to use interface and make sure that people understand exactly what it is. But to give you the high level, Rally is a platform for buying and selling investments in high value assets. Typically they have a, a long history. Some of them have a history of appreciation. They have great sort of stories behind them, but they have value that's made them unattainable for regular people, for everybody like me or you, or people that don't have a million connections or tens of millions of dollars. So we created this app that started with Classic Cars in 2017. It's moved into investments in watches and wine and, and high-end memorabilia, cards, all these asset classes that have huge enthusiast groups and people that really care, but maybe haven't allowed those people to have access to the best examples. And kind of those people have watched the prices get away. So we've created an app that takes each of these really unique items, anywhere from you know $100,000 to millions of dollars at times, it turns them into their own SEC qualified investment, which has its own total value, its own share price, and all of its own investors. So essentially, kind of like a mini company that you're investing in. We open up IPOs. There are equivalent of IPOs every single day in the app. Those fill with investors. We maintain it. We insure it. We allow you to invest with no minimums. There's no management fee or any sort of those carry costs. And then after 90 days, those trade on a surface within the app all through registered broker-dealers with true bid-ask and sort of an auction model. So really what we try to create is this marketplace that allows people to invest in the things they really care about and democratizes that investment. So that started in, again, we launched in 2017, but the lead up to that was very different because it was something that no one had ever kind of seen before. And I think that for us, what we started thinking about this 2014, 2015, that's a really specific time, especially for finance and for the way consumers interact. I think that we're going to look back in 20 years and say 2015 was a very specific moment because you had Robinhood launching, you had crypto on this sort of wave of volatility mixed with these wild highs and lows where it was really starting to infiltrate the mainstream and retail. You had apps like Instagram that were just so ubiquitous and required a new means of communication. You had group chats dominating conversation where before that it was phone calls. So you have all these things happening and these walls of access starting to fall across the board in every imaginable way. So there were all these sort of 
at the same time, huge auction results coming out for these antique car auctions all over TV, all over the news. And there was this start of a willingness to invest in these new assets on new platforms as opposed to those legacy platforms that already existed. And now you have all the information that was once only available to the people with the huge connections and those big bank accounts. All that's becoming more accessible. So the last piece of that was real access to the headline type results. We started thinking about it myself and Chris talking about what we could actually do. And we kind of sat down, you know, in a coffee shop. And he was always a really smart kid in high school. I was kind of a creative kid. All of our friends assumed we'd work together on something at some point. We brought in Max, who had been doing private placement deals at Barclays for 10 years before we started. The Jobs Act had just opened up the ability for a lot of people to sort of invest in Regulation A+, which is what we use, was really sort of sowing the seeds of what would become true democratization. All these things hit at the same time. It was that eureka moment where, you know, Chris was like, I think I got it. I think I have the idea. And we've been talking about it and bouncing around for a while. There's like all these car auctions. They're all over TV. It's crazy. It's something I care about, something we all care about. It's the potential to do this with a lot of different asset classes using the regulation that exists. And I think people are ready for it. And so we sat down and started sketching this out, launched in 2017. And ever since then, it's kind of been heads down, building out 12 different asset classes that we have now, the sort of liquidity component that we've added, and a lot that's set to come right now that is on our roadmap is something we talked about in like 2014, 2015 in that first conversation. I like that you are democratizing a service that was previously only available to the ultra wealthy, right? So um, that's something I, I can definitely get behind. No, so I was looking at your numbers. You, you have crossed over 200,000 users, have invested in over 120 IPOs, those users combined, right? And I think that's equivalent to more than $50 million worth of assets, right? I mean, these are big numbers that we're talking about, but how do you make this magic happen? You got to have a good number of partners, right? At the end of the day, it's a marketplace in many ways, right? So you got to have partners on different sides of the business. Yeah, I mean, well, you're selling us short. We're, we're over, well over 200 IPOs at this point, almost 30 million on the management. But I, I won't hold it Amazing. against you. Things <laughs> happen quickly. You know what I mean, things happen quickly in this space. But yeah, I mean, to give you the breakdown of kind of all these asset classes that we work in, it's everything. Like I said, we started in classic cars, but you realize that classic cars share a lot of DNA early on with things like trading cards or vintage video games or even dinosaurs and some of the stuff we've been doing recently, which is a little more esoteric, but has great history and has great price results when it goes to auction. We never just kind of jump into any asset class. So now with a dozen individual asset classes and almost six years from first concept, we've been able to really understand the dynamics of each of these asset classes. And they all, again, have that shared DNA, even when it wouldn't seem like it. So again, like dinosaurs and rookie cards on paper are very, very different. But the way we source and secure each asset is very much the same at this point. That's very formulaic with a mix of that intuition that we picked up. So we always work with groups or individuals with really significant domain expertise. And then whenever possible, we bring them in-house to work with us exclusively. So before any asset or any IPO ever goes public on Rally, we have every single item authenticated by third-party experts. And we have best-in-class insurance policies set up just to ensure that there's no defective title or forgery, everything that ensures investors are protected. And we maintain the majority of the collection at the secure sort of purpose-built facility and then we expand the experiential footprint. You've been to our store in Soho. We kind of have a little mini museum. We'll do more of that to make sure that the opportunities to bring the assets to life and get them in front of our investors is always available. But we've been lucky to get sort of the attention, especially the last couple of years, of so many of these great people in the space, of so many of the auction houses and private collectors and any, these individuals even who have these incredible collections that no one really knows exists. 
but they want to share them with the world in this more democratized way. So they really gravitated towards that mission. And we've been able to build a really great network that isn't just one person or one partner, but that's been a huge part of our product. And the idea that we're democratizing the buy side is great. But I think we're also starting to see that democratization on the supply side as well, because we're able to access and grant liquidity to a lot of people who've been sitting on these amazing assets, want to share them with the world, but don't necessarily want to just put it at auction or drop it on eBay is not the right place to put it. So we've been able to really build that network on both sides. Please tell me you get to test drive all those collectible <laughs> cars. <laughs> I wish I could say that. I wish I could say that we do, but no, I mean, the cars, for example, like they're always sort of not scheduled. They're only ever sort of driven to roll tires and they're done by experts. And it's always maintained with that 24 hour day concierge. But a lot of the assets, again, the reason that we opened our first museum space in Soho, which is right below our office on Lafayette Street, which has been closed right now because of COVID, but we're looking forward to expanding that footprint is because these assets all have these incredible stories. So the last iteration of our store, it had this Bond era Aston Martin sitting in the middle of the store. And you walk in, that's the first thing you see. Then surrounded by you know, all these incredible assets that are behind glass, but you can kind of invest in the spot. It tells a story. Things like you know, the 1952 Mickey Mantle card, which almost never existed. So many of those are dropped in the Atlantic Ocean. And you know, the sneakers that Michael Jordan wore in 1988 which they were these Jordan 3s that he wore for a very specific set of time. And that's really the birth of sneaker culture in a lot of ways, that particular sneaker. And, you know, one of the most highly sought after Birkin bags, which when you see it in person, you realize why these Hermes heirloom pieces are investment worthy. And we're telling those stories in a way that we can really bring them to life. So while I don't personally get to sort of, you know, walk around with a Honus Wagner rookie card in my pocket, Putting that on display and, allow, and being allowed to share that with the investors and with anyone off the street who really can come in and look at this in a way that it's not the intimidating setting that a museum or an auction house might have in some cases. You do it in a way where you can come in, ask questions, hang out. We have events. We make sure that the stories are being told appropriately. That's always been a huge goal of the platform. And for me to see that come to life as a designer and somebody who's been building this for the last six years, seven years, seeing the, the looks on people's faces when they hear those stories has been a really important part of the way we built this platform. Any favorite items that have been featured for you? Yeah, I got a few. I mean, it's again, this is never investment advice. So it's not something that I would ever use for investment purposes. But when it comes to favorites, I think so many of these assets have these emotional connections with the people who invest and the people who care about them. For me, there's a couple in particular, the, um, the farewell court, the last court that Kobe Bryant played on in 2016 was an IPO that we ran a few weeks ago. And it's one that it's got you know, his number, silkscreen kind of, and painted onto the wood. And it's something where there's this really iconic photo of him kissing the floor after the last game. That was an emotional moment for me. I think that for a lot of people in their mid-30s, Kobe Bryant was really the way we shaped a lot of the way that we played sports and the way we interacted with each other was based on like the finesse of Kobe Bryant and what he did on the court. Michael Jordan's always going to be the GOAT. He's the one who, like, in terms of collectors, and he's the one who's really at the top of the mountain. But I was a little bit young to truly appreciate Michael Jordan in the moment. I was able to appreciate Kobe in the moments. So that last floor was something that was a very emotional moment for me, for sure. And I've been a Kobe collector my whole life. And then uh, the second is a car. So the, the Jaguar XJ220, which is a, this really specific European supercar that's on our platform, one of the earliest sort of you know, high value, big ticket items that we brought to the platform too. It's one that when I was younger, there was a store called Walt's Hobby Shop that was in Brooklyn. And it was like scale models and baseball cards and all these things that when you're like 10 years old, it's like Disneyland. It's like the place you want to be. I bought, I think it was with my own money. The first time I spent my own money on anything as like a 13-year-old or a 12-year-old, this scale model of that car, the exact color and the exact spec of the one that we got. 
And that was like my prized possession as a kid in my childhood bedroom. So having the real thing and putting that on rally and seeing how people got excited about it when we ran that IPO was a very emotional moment for me too, I would say. Oh man. Yeah. I think I got a little bit of goosebumps just thinking about Kobe. So Rob, clearly you have a big focus on community, right? This is uh, even before we started recording, you were chatting about the importance of building a community, right? How would you describe uh, your typical customer, right? Uh, who are you trying to get? Yeah. So, and we talked about this, but community, this really hot button word right now, it's something that everybody has to use and everybody is trying to figure out how do I build community? How do I monetize community? It's a word I think that gets used incorrectly a lot. I think a lot of people confuse community and monetization. And for us, we've always looked at community and the way we're building this platform as something that's going to have a lasting effect on that community, where it's not just people who you know, know each other from Twitter that are investing in the same things, having the conversation. It's taking these things that were looked at a lot of times as really important in niche groups and bringing it together where it's almost like a subreddit for investing. The way we've looked at all these asset classes that now the way information moves, it's so easy to find people who care about the same things you do and realize that your community and you know your tribe is way bigger than you think. And every time we bring a new asset to the market, whether it's a video game or it's you know even dinosaurs, these things that everybody knows about from when they were younger, you realize how big that community is. So for us, we've been able to sort of engage that community driven by the assets and then be able to sort of harbor that community and bring it together by some of these experiential events too. But we found that as we built this community that we've built in our investor base, they're young, but they're incredibly savvy. And they understand these assets in a way that I never understood everything about the things I love and the things I cared about when I was 18, 19 years old. But these kids really do. I think that's why word of mouth for us has always been one of the biggest drivers of traffic and biggest driver of new investors. We've never really had that true sort of marketing function at Rally, but we do our best to put out interesting content and tell the story on each item on the platform. And that's why you see like our average investor now might come in for a very specific item. They might love Michael Jordan and come in for a Michael Jordan rookie card, but that's the passion-led investment, the first one. Then they start to look around on our platform. They start to see the other assets that really interest them. They start to learn more and get really educated on what they mean. They start doing those Google searches and finding those communities that know them best and those communities welcome them in and they learn more about what it is. And then they start to say like, all right, I'm investing in this Michael Jordan rookie card. This 1985 Ferrari Testarossa, that's Michael Jordan's favorite card. It was one that's this iconic image of him pulling up to the stadium, to the arena in Chicago and getting out and having the MJ Air plates on his Ferrari. That's their second investment. Then they start to see that shared DNA in a watch or a handbag or something else that's a little more esoteric and go down that rabbit hole. And now that passion led them to the first investment but now they have four or five individual assets that really start to sculpt this diversified portfolio based on that community and based on that aspect of storytelling and really starting to get self-educated and understand what they mean. So it's been really encouraging to see the way that it's never, our platform has been great at bringing really thoughtful and well-diversified assets to market. And those investors who come in led by passion, led by community, become really savvy investors very quickly on the platform. And I imagine your company culture is also going to reflect a little bit or maybe a lot, the culture of your client base, right? How, how would you describe the magic that happens internally within all the employees at Rally? Yeah, I mean, you know what? We've been really lucky in that we have this product that does elicit that emotional response and does engage communities. So a lot of our, not just our employees and like the staff and the team, our investors in the company, like a lot of them were users first. And I think they came to the platform because they were driven by that same passion. Everybody, me, you, everyone, even if you don't want to admit it, is a collector in some respect. And I think that 
for me, it's almost turned into hoarding. I think my whole life has been like, get a bunch of things. And as a designer, I love keeping these pieces around me and sort of thinking about them from a design perspective and put them on mood boards and put them in these safes and all these things that I've been a part of. But everybody collects something. Everybody collects those moments and everybody sort of connects with those moments, either when they were younger, when they started to sort of learn about these individual assets. We've seen that with our company and with the whole team as well. I think everybody has the one thing and you see it like in our Slack channels or in sort of our team meetings, there'll be like, you know, there's some quiet members of the team, but then all of a sudden there's like an asset that we're bringing public in a couple of weeks and we're having like the all hands meeting talking about it. And you see their, their face light up and they have sort of a lot of opinion about it. They know so much about it. And that's kind of how we've tried to build this platform and build the culture of the company as well, is that we hire smart people. We bring in people who understand these assets, but we don't ever expect somebody to start at Rally and know every single thing about every single asset. But we want them to have that creative curiosity where when they come in, there's going to be something along the way that triggers that, that response, that emotional connection. And being able to provide that for the whole team is a really important part of the way that we build this platform. So while we always use data to inform a lot of these acquisitions, and a lot of things that we, that we IPO and bring to Rally, doing it in a way where everybody's opinion matters and the things that we know our team cares about or front of mind has been a really important part of the way we've built not just the team internally, but our cap table and our investors as well. Yeah. And what about COVID? I mean, we're talking basically a year into, into this pandemic. Crazy. Crazy. Right? <laughs> yeah. I, had you told me that a, a year and, and a month ago, I would not have believed you. Okay. Science fiction, right? <laughs> but how, how, has it, uh, how has it been? I mean, I can't imagine it's been easy. I mean, it's, it's weird because you have these two things happening. One you know, we're both in New York and you see what's happened in New York. And I think when, when COVID first started taking over every conversation and shutting businesses down, and then you had protests and so many people that were affected in so many specific ways, it was tough to sort of say this business is the most important thing right now. And it, it's impossible to sort of look at the business and look at Rally and say, this is where our attention should be right now. And I think that affected everybody, not just us and not just our company, it affected everybody. And I think New York you know, California, there were certain parts of this country that were affected differently than others. For us, having to close the store down and sort of board up and sort of, you know, everybody from the team going back to their, where they, their, their homes and being with their family, it changed the way that our business was run dramatically. And I think it's, it's changed a lot of things for good. But at the same time, we watched our business kind of, you know, 3X in terms of all the measurable metrics once people were in the house and starting to look at their collections. And I think that what we saw and this is across the board, whether it was business or personal, is that nostalgia is so important right now. And it was so important during that height of COVID. And it, nostalgia is this weird peace of mind for everybody to connect with those moments, either from childhood or from those special times in their life, especially around the people and the places that you hold in high regard. But it's also been a time for self-education. And it's a time when investing in yourself works to your benefit. So what you had was a lot of people with some extra time on their hands markets that were moving really, really quickly all around us, whether it was equities or crypto or all these alternatives. And, you know, everyone's talked about it, but we saw this willingness to try something new by these young investors who recognize the value in collectibles in those moments that made them feel good. I think that created this situation where a platform like ours really had an opportunity to present a new alternative and present the ability to, to put some money into something that you really care about and connect with those moments the same way I just kind of described that Kobe floor. For me, it was an emotional moment. And it sounds corny sometimes to say like, yeah, Kobe Bryant's like this hero type of thing. But to me, having a big portion of my life attached to this person 
who I held in such high regard, having some more time to learn more about him or watch the Michael Jordan documentary or go through my attic and talk to my mom about stuff from when I was a kid. All that became really important, not just for me, for a lot of people on our platform and for our team as well. So Rob, with metrics tripling, right? I imagine revenue has also followed. One thing I haven't asked you is how are you monetizing? Is it through kind of like an exchange through a transaction fee or is there more to it? So there's more to it. I mean, we're, we don't charge a transaction fee right now. So we, each individual asset has this sourcing fee that's baked into the IPO price and anywhere between, you know, five and 10%, typically around 7%, which is still dramatically lower than any of the auction houses or any of those secondary markets where you would sell these assets. But that covers the insurance, the maintenance, we're able to do it at scale. So we've been able to drive all the prices that you typically see for some of these high value items to transact down to a very, very low amount. And we're doing that in a way where we're able to source the best possible assets, but also give what we feel is the best possible price driven by comps and data to our individual users and investors as well. For us right now, it's about growth. And it's about, it's about putting this community together in a way that we're doing something together and we're bringing these great assets to market and we're building that user base at a certain point and we're getting there now. We talk to our users so much and they drive so much of the feature set. There will be that premium tier with all those value-added features that they're looking for. We want to make sure we're doing that in the most responsible possible way. So at a certain point, you'll see some premium access. You'll see things that potentially have that subscription associated with them. But we're not going to do that until we're really in a position that the user base is sort of in a place that they truly want it and that we can put it out in the most responsible possible way. So that's down the road, but we're really focused on building that community and building the platform out and building the diversity of assets right now as well. Yeah, you, you basically answered my next question, which is going to be about the future. You, you mentioned growth, of course. I mean, five years down the line or 10 years down the line, thinking, you know, I got to think big, of course, and, and you do. <laughs> what would be uh, an ideal scenario? I think for us, it's, it's hard to say because things move so fast right now. So if you would have told me again a year ago, I'm going to be in my apartment for a year, you know, making this app and not seeing human <laughs> beings, I probably would have said you were a liar. I would have never guessed that. So I think for us, our big picture goal is really transforming the, all of this sort of all these asset classes and all of this sort of locked up liquidity, which is tucked away in these private collections and in these auction houses and, and places that no one even knows they exist. So when I think about the future, any asset class that has a following and people who really care about it, that's a space that we want to be in and that we will be in. And I think that we want to be able to share that with our community. So when we think about four years, five years down the line, the way I've always thought about it is that you know, Robinhood or, or TD Ameritrade or any of these sort of mobile investment apps, that's where all your equities are going to be. And I think Coinbase for a lot of people is where all their crypto is going to be. And that's an unavoidable part of a, a portfolio right now. For alternative assets, that's going to be rally. And that means that if you're walking down the street, anywhere in New York especially, and you see sort of street art or you see somebody walking by with a specific bag or you see you know, a car driving by, if you care about those things and you know them well, you should be able to invest in them if you feel like it's a good investment or you feel like you're educated on that investment or you feel like you have the unfair advantage and you know it well. Because we see 13 and 14 and 15-year-olds right now, they can't invest on rally yet, but they'll walk into our showroom and they'll see that Aston Martin. They know every single detail about it. They'll be able to tell you everything about it in a way that the person who owns the best quality examples of it does not know. Because those people that own them, a lot of times never see them. It's tucked away somewhere. And we want to be able to sort of create a world when that 17-year-old or 16-year-old is of age and understands what their 401k looks like and, and has some investable income and they want to put it to work. We want to be in a situation where rally is a place they can go to make that investment that they know best 
and the thing they truly care about. So whether it's, you know, intangible assets or depending on where NFTs go or what all this conversation around the space right now of alternatives is, we want to be at the front of that conversation and allow people to invest in the things they truly care about. Rob, I know you've listened to the show before and, and you know that in every conversation, there's definitely founder advice embedded uh, in it, right? From your standpoint, what has been the toughest part of, of being a co-founder? Uh, I mean, honestly, it's something that it's hard to say exactly what's the toughest thing because every day has its own challenges. I think you know that too. For everybody, every day has its own challenges. And sometimes something gets thrown your way that you know knocks you off your feet a little bit. And whether it's in your personal life or your business life, it, it causes you to stop thinking about the things you thought were important and change direction. I think that for a business, for us, early on, we made this decision, Chris, Max, and I, that, and it was a very, you know, we didn't talk about it explicitly, but we all were on the same page. And when we were building, we had this choice. And I think everybody has this choice when they're starting any company or starting any new mission. You either got to be in it for the long term, or you got to say, I'm doing this for, you know, a quick side project or a cash grab or whatever it's, whatever it's going to be. I don't have any negative opinion on anybody who's building something to make a ton of money. If that's what your goal is and that's what your thought process is, that's great. Go with it. For us, we knew what the hurdles were going to be early. It was going to be creating this regulatory structure and getting the first iteration of product out. And we knew that we had to prove two things. One, that these alternative assets were a true investment that could be handled and treated like an investment. And that rally was going to be the most trusted place to make that investment. So that for us meant, for me, especially as a designer and somebody who's, who's owning product early on, it might take a much longer time to get this done and get this out than I want it to be or that we want it to be. But we made that decision very deliberately early that we were building for the long term and we maybe weren't going to see that pay itself back for a long time. And that means being okay not taking salary for an extended period and being okay knowing that there's a chance we build an entire first version of this app and we sit with our lawyers and they say that's not the right way to do it. Or I mean, we bring a demo to investors and they have questions we can't really answer because we're not past the finish line yet and we're not going to be able to raise money. All those things early on, we said no matter what happens, we're going to stick to this plan. And if it takes 18 months, which is how long it actually did take to get the first iteration out and to get the first offering approved by the SEC, that's how long we're going to do it. And we're not going to let all this other stuff derail us. So that's the biggest thing. Like For us, it happened because 2017, we were about to launch late 2016, was the start of the ICO craze. And everybody was saying, why don't you just do an ICO? Why don't you raise $40 million of non-dilutive capital and throw it in the bank? And we had to stick to the plan and put blinders on so all that noise from the outside and put up those filters that said, if this is meaningful, it's going to last the long term, it's for us. And that for us was the most important part. And for any entrepreneur, any investor, anybody doing something new, the ability to sort of stick to your guns, it's human nature to over-index entire spaces when it's the only conversation. But for us, we knew stick to our guns, stay focused, know it's going to take a long time, but this isn't some cash grab. This is something that we're building for the long term. And that was always the hardest part. And thank God I had Max and Chris early on on the product side helping me too, because they're way more mature and they're way smarter with stuff like that than I am. So that was like the biggest takeaway early on. Yeah, focus is definitely the, the name of the game, right? Rob, any, any favorite hobbies? I know you're all in with, with Rally, but how about uh, some, some extra time outside of that? This is the hobby. The hobby is like this. You know, like honestly, there's one of these things where, where I've had hobbies that I've been so lucky to be able to integrate with Rally and not just collecting, but like, I always wanted to have a clothing line. So we built like a merch component of Rally, which is becoming a really significant part of the business now. And I get to work with designers and with our team on, with our, our designer, Patricia, who's awesome. And Christina, who runs all of our retail and all of our merch. 
they have the same vision of the future as I do. And I think we've been able to build out some really great design components and these really collectibles that we made ourselves to put as part of Rally. That's been like a big thing, but also I'm a designer at heart. So I worked in music for a long time. Like I'll still do sort of like one album every year as a creative director for one of these artists or a rapper or sort of a singer. And that's always been like a creative outlet for me. And I've always tried to stay sort of one foot in and maintain those relationships. But design is all around us. So it's photography. And I do so much of the photography for the app myself still, not because I'm the best at it. I just love doing it. I'll do so much of the design for our merch. And, and again, some of those sort of freelance projects, one or two a year, just to stay sharp. I think that's like a really important part of every entrepreneur's life or any sort of, especially in product and design, you have to stay creatively curious. And we want to make sure that everybody at our company too, and I tell people that on my team all the time, like I want them to pursue some of that stuff outside of just Rally to make sure you stay creatively curious. So I try and incorporate as many of those things as I can into Rally, but I'll do one or two of those on the side a year too, just to stay sharp. Listen, for what it's worth, the design focus comes out, right? And then I, I, it's very noticeable that you guys definitely over-index on design. And it's actually, <laughs> it actually looks good. I like it. You, you have a hat, a rally hat on. And, you know, it's something I would, I would actually uh, get. Yeah, so. I mean, that's what we always want to do. I mean, we, and again, Chris, my partner, Chris, is legitimately, he's the smartest person I've ever met, the smartest person I've ever known. But he's also so analytically smart and I was so creative early on. And Max was like the voice of reason between us. He bridged the gap because like he's our CFO, but he also showed up to our first photo shoot in like an all leather biker outfit. And we were like, all right, this is the perfect way to make this company work. Because you had like the banker who looked nothing like a banker. And you had the creative who wanted to go way left field. And you had the smartest guy in the room who was all about the numbers and operating. Max bridged that gap. And now we all share that same love of like, design that's effective in sort of activating a user base. And we've all kind of focused on that and making it a design and a product first company over the last, you know, five years. Amazing. Well, Rob, thank you for joining us. Fascinating stuff. Congratulations. Definitely keep building. And I know you, you've been to Philly. You spent many years there. Definitely post-pandemic, go back. You know, you're welcome at Wharton and you know, thank, thank you. I you appreciate again. that, man. Oh, our half of our team, our CEO George and Fitz, who runs our ops, and like so many of the people that are around us are all from Philly. I feel like New York has lost the fight at Rally. It's like a half Philly <laughs> elite now. So I'm going to be there at some point soon for sure. Amazing, amazing. Well, thank you for joining us, Rob. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. 